from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my Inner Circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. This episode of Newt's World, the Ides of March is a day on the Roman calendar that corresponds to March 15th. In 44 BC, March 15th became notorious as the date of the assassination of Julius Caesar, which made the Ides of March a turning point in Roman history. So on this episode, I'm telling the story of Julius Caesar's remarkable life and death. If you doubt Caesar's impact on all our lives, have a look at a calendar. There's a month called July. That month was named for Julius Caesar. The following month is August, named after Caesar's nephew, the first Roman Emperor Augustus. The calendar we use today was named after these two men who lived 2,000 years ago. 
The modern calendar is actually Caesar's calendar. He added the number of days necessary to actually fit how often the Earth goes around the sun, and the 365-day calendar, including adjusting it every four years for leap year, is Caesar's invention. So Caesar's in your life, whether you know it or not. He's in your life every year, and he's part of the calendar by which you live. Caesar, which became in uh, German Kaiser, for Kaiser Wilhelm, became in Russian Tsar, is today still a term that describes a centralized dictatorial power, 2,000 years after he died. So we're dealing with somebody whose impact shook our part of the world, the Western world, so profoundly that even to this day, he is in many ways an, an unknown and an unstudied but very real presence. If you look at Latin, you'll find that among the most elegant books ever written in Latin was Caesar's Gallic Wars and Caesar's Civil Wars. Because Caesar was not just a great military general, an amazing politician, uh, he was also a remarkable good writer and a remarkably good orator. His reputation for using language brilliantly uh, made him one of the leading people in Rome for much of his life, just because of his sheer talent. The Roman Republic got too big, too militaristic, was too much the center of power, and as a result, money poured in from all over to corrupt the Roman system. So if you were in Greece, or you were in Spain, or you were in North Africa, and you wanted to get goodies, the most efficient way to get goodies was to have a lobbyist in Rome bribe somebody. And there are a lot of lessons to be learned by what happens when your system gets to be bigger than you can maintain and when the breakdown of the traditional order leads to the rise of tyrants. And that's literally what was happening in Caesar's lifetime. If you don't understand the Rome of his time, you can't understand him. Caesar's uncle, Marius, is around 100 B.C., and uh, he's the best general of his generation, but he is politically on the losing side of a power struggle, and so he's, he's sort of pushed off to one side, and he's not very important. And all of a sudden, this huge Germanic tribe comes rolling down the Rhone River Valley, and the Roman people get scared because they think these, this huge tribe is going to break through into Italy. And so they call him back and give him an army, and he goes north, and he wipes out the, the German tribe. And they now like Marius briefly. And then he is deposed and exiled. And he is sent to a place that we don't think of as a desert. But in its time, Sicily was considered a desert. It was not very uh, heavily occupied. And, and as he recounts late in his life, uh, he survives only by imagining what he's going to do to his enemies when he gets back. Uh, he does get back, and then he does what he said he would do. Now, why does this matter? Because what's beginning to happen, the politics of personality and philosophy and policy are beginning to be replaced by violence, by, by poisonings, by assassinations, by crowds in the street, uh, and by intimidation. And in many ways, Marius is the beginning of that breakthrough. Uh, now, in that period, the secondary rise is of, of Sulla, who is a great general, 
and Sulla becomes the great competitor to Marius. And between them, they just start wiping people out. So if you're on Sulla's side, you're in danger of Marius killing you. If you're on Marius's side, you're in danger of Sulla's, Sulla killing you. One of the ways they finance what they're doing is they look at the richest guys and they just steal their property. And they say, you know, lucky you, uh, you get to be exiled to Greece and I want all your money. Or you could stay here, I'll kill you, and then I'll take all your money. Which, which one do you like better? And a substantial number of Romans ended up going to Greece for long periods just in order to avoid being killed. In that process, in that period, Julius Caesar doesn't really exist yet. He's a kid. His family is very old. In fact, they are among the oldest families. Uh, the Julii are among the oldest families in Roman history. They go all the way back, in theory, a prince from Troy. And in fact, they trace their mythical background to the goddess Venus. So Caesar, at one level, is born into a family which says to him, you are the direct descendant of a god. And Caesar had the kind of personality that made sense to him. And so he, his whole life, he has this kind of inner arrogance and inner certainty that you probably have to be a descendant of a god to have. I mean, it's a little hard to imagine how any normal person could have been like Caesar. But he has no money. And his father dies when he's young. His mother actually takes the family's relatively small holdings, invests it in a high-rise, which back then meant six or eight-story apartment building in Sabura, which was a working-class neighborhood. And so she and the family live on the top floor, which is also the healthiest um, and the cleanest, and they rent all the rest of the floors, which means that in his early 12 to 16 years of age period, Caesar's wandering around among working-class people, learning working-class Latin, understanding how they think, what they do, how they negotiate, and and he is stunningly smart. Caesar may be uh, much like Napoleon, one of the smartest people ever to live, and so he could absorb information, he could learn things at enormous speed. Caesar was ravenously ambitious. Uh, he thought he was descended from the gods. He thought he was descended from a family which had been cheated and which was socially worthy of dramatically greater assets than they actually had. From the earliest time we encounter him, he is unendingly ambitious. And he understands that in the Roman world, if you're going to be ambitious, you've got to be physically capable of being a warrior because otherwise you can't earn the level of respect. It's interesting to watch Cicero, for example, who is probably Caesar's equal as an orator and as a writer, is not a great warrior. And it cripples his career because everybody knows it. But Caesar is somebody who could fight his way out of a room, could fight his way in a battle, could lead an army, and the army felt honored to follow him. And I think he acquired that, uh, my guess is, he acquired the core of that when he was like, 13 or 14 or 15 years old, because he looked around, he said, I'm Caesar. Caesar goes on to marry somebody who Sulla doesn't like, because she belongs politically to the wrong side. And Sulla, who's a dictator, and who is, and he, he's really, he and Marius are really the beginning of the total breakdown of the Republic as a system, because now you have dictators, you have people who have real power, and they're prepared to kill you if you don't do what they want. And sometimes they'll kill you even if you do do what they want, because they need your money. And so uh, Sulla basically says to him, you have to divorce your wife. And Caesar says, no. It's, it's truly one of those things where you have to believe you have some kind of divine destiny uh, or you're just nuts. Uh, because Caesar's 
Standing there is a very young man facing this dictator who's a great general, has a huge uh, force around him, is capable of killing Caesar on the spot. And he says, I'm not doing it. And so Sulla says, okay, well, then get, get out of town. You know, I'm not going to, for some reason, he decided not to kill Caesar. And it may have been, again, this magic touch that Caesar had that he could manipulate people at levels that are just astonishing. And so the dictator said, okay, I'm really, really mad at you, uh, but I'm not going to kill you right now. So Caesar goes up in the Apennines Mountains and for three years hides because he knows that on a bad weekend, Sulla could wake up and decide, you know, Caesar doesn't amuse me that much. Let's kill him. Uh, eventually, he joins the army to get away from Rome because he wants to get far enough away that uh, Sulla can't easily kill him. And he doesn't want to remind Sulla that he's around. So he wanders off, and the great action area at that time for the army is over in what they would have considered uh, the east, which is along what we now would say is the Turkish and Syrian coast, where they were constantly fighting with, with both pirates and with the uh, local governments. Caesar turns out to be an amazingly courageous soldier. He, he wins the Oak Leaves, which is the highest, sort of the equivalent of our Congressional Medal of Honor. There are many ways in which you can have authority or fame. You know, you can be rich, you can be from a good family, you can hold a high office. If you've done something so heroic that you're allowed to wear the oak wreath, you're now in a unique category because no one can challenge your courage. And so it puts you in a very small league. It says, first of all, you've been in combat. You've done it so heroically that your peers awarded you this this highest and the Congressional Medal of Honor is the only thing that's comparable. And if you've ever been in military environments, people who walk in wearing the Congressional Medal of Honor are by definition in a different league because it's something they earned. So I think in that sense, it was one of the things early on that marked him off and that sort of said, this guy's special. You got to take him seriously. And um, he's going to become somebody. The concept of wearing a wreath which the Etruscans had done with gold wreaths for their kings. And in Greek mythology, Apollo represents power and wears a laurel wreath on his head. So in Caesar's mind, wearing the oak wreath would be a signal of his uniqueness and his near godlike importance. Again, it was an age when people started earlier because they died younger. But still, this is a guy who's, who's working really hard to rise as fast as he can. So Caesar, as a very young guy, is working his way into being seen as a great soldier, a great general, a great orator, a very, very clever politician. Caesar at one point gets captured by pirates. Now, the pirates had operated off the coast of Syria and Turkey because they had found places where they could go in where the passageways were so complicated that no one could find them. And what they didn't realize was that Caesar had almost a perfect memory. So two things start out of this particular experience. One is, here's Caesar by himself, surrounded by pirates who are pretty tough people, and they want 20 units of silver for him. And he says, that's really stupid. You know, I'm a famous guy. I mean, you got to go for 50. If you don't, I mean, if you don't go for 50, I will feel so insulted. And if you go for 50, they'll pay you. And by the way, after they pay you and you release me, I'm going to come back and kill you. Uh, and the pirates all think this is just great. Here's this guy. He's not physically d- dominant. He's, he's fairly slender. 
um, very muscled, but very slender. And um, he doesn't look like he's a guy who's going to come back and kill all the pirates. And so they laugh at him. They think he's just terrific. He's a great personality. Love chatting with him, you know. So they get they ask for 50 because he told them to. They get 50. They release him. He organizes an army. He remembered exactly how to find them. He goes back. He crucifies all of them. But because he liked them, he cut their throats first. And this is a brief note to remember about the Romans. Crucifixion in the Roman model is designed to be really painful. It's not, it's not what we see in the Christian image of Christ on the cross. In the Roman model, you are tied up you're not, and, and you are hanging from a wooden uh, cross. And the goal is to allow you to hang there uh, until the point where birds, for example, will come and peck your eyes out. Um, and you will eventually die of dehydration. When the Romans put nails through Christ and poke him in the side with a spear, these are actually considered acts of uh, kindness because they accelerate the rate at which you die. To understand the Roman world, you have to start with a very simple model. These were really tough, ruthless people. For example, when Spartacus rebels, one of the great moments in Roman history. Spartacus has about 20,000 followers, and he really scares the Romans because the idea of a slave rebellion uh, would, would be genuinely frightening if you were a Roman aristocrat. So when they finally defeat him, they crucify somebody about every 200 feet for 70 miles. So from Naples to Rome, you are riding down a road that has people crucified the entire distance. And, the, and their goal was to sort of say to people, we're really sincere, and we want you to know you do this kind of stuff. We will relentlessly come and get you. This is also a country, remember this before Caesar, just to give you this flavor. It often hits me as I walk around Rome, looking at the city and looking at the walls. It's a city which had, uh, during the Punic Wars with Carthage, uh, Hannibal is in, is in Italy for 17 years, and they can't beat him. But he can't break through the city walls. And so for 17 years, they just slug it out. And the Romans at one point lose an entire army at a battle called Cannae, to which their attitude is, I guess, we have better get another army. They decide to beat the Carthaginians. They have to go to sea uh, and build a navy, which they had not done up to then. They build an entire navy. It goes to sea. There's a huge hurricane. The navy sinks. And the Roman response is, I guess we need a new navy. And they build another navy. I mean... These are just relentless. This is the world. I'm giving this as background because to understand Caesar, you have to understand this was accepted as normal. This level of toughness was where they started. It wasn't what they got to. And so Caesar comes along, and Caesar is, if anything, smarter, more personable, more ruthless, and tougher than anybody else. Uh, somebody once said that in the great fight between Pompey and Caesar, the, the equivalent of two pirates, I mean, that they were both trying to win control of the empire, of the republic which became the empire, and that it wasn't like there was a good guy and a bad guy. These were, these were guys just slugging it out for power, and if they happened to kill you on the way through, tough break, because what they were doing was important to them. So here's Caesar, comes back home, enters politics, becomes the high priest of, of the Roman religion, which gives him another source of authority, and it becomes an elected official. 
Uh, and the Roman system was very complicated. And, and there's a hierarchy you get into. You gradually rise in importance. It's all designed to minimize the ability of any one person to be a dictator. It's what, it's what Marius and Sulla have broken out of. But after Sulla's death, it begins to revert back towards the traditions. And the goal, again, a little bit like the American Constitution, the goal is to not have anybody concentrate power enough to be in charge of the whole thing. So they have two consuls every year. The two consuls can veto each other. They have people who are elected to lower office. They have various powers. And Caesar's gradually climbing this chain of authority. And at the same time, he is becoming one of the most popular people in Rome. It's, and it's really interesting to watch. Caesar is instinctively what I would call a populist in the sense that having grown up in Sabora and having understood the, the working class Romans, he had concluded that the future of Rome was absorbing more and more people. So part of his career will be extending citizenship to more and more and more people, which builds a huge force of followers uh, because they see Caesar as protecting them and as being their guy. Caesar ultimately is given authority to go to Gaul. Now, he's already led several armies in, in Spain. He's led armies over in, in the east in what we would call Turkey or Syria. But now he has the big moment of his career. And what people tend to forget is Caesar's gone for seven years. There are about three million uh, men in, in Gaul when he arrives. So one estimate is uh, by a Roman historian, Suetonius, that he killed a million, sold a million into slavery, and there were a million left by the time he was done. Uh, he destroyed probably, Suetonius said he destroyed 800 towns. Uh, at one point, uh, he, he fights a particular tribe, and um, they finally surrender. He surrounds their fort. He they finally surrender. And instead of killing them, he cuts off their right hands so that there are 5,000 men wandering around Gaul with one hand because he wants to send a signal that you oppose me and it is going to be really bad for you. Finally, the tribes get together. They all rebel simultaneously. Uh, he is in the fight of his life. And in about a six-month period, he organizes his army, outmaneuvers them, and wins. Now, the Roman army's great strength is engineering and logistics. They know how to build, have a siege. They know how to build a fort to protect themselves. They know how to sustain their army in the field with supplies. Uh, it is a very well-thought-out army, and an army which had been practicing war for several hundred years. One-on-one, -on -one, uh, the Gauls were probably as good or better than the Romans. The Germans were probably as good or better than the Romans. The problem was they didn't fight one-on-one. -on -one. And Roman armies were very, very good armies. Caesar has a tremendous instrument, which he uses brilliantly. And he uses it for seven years. And it's important to understand this because when you watch what's about to happen when he goes back to Rome, there's only one person who has the level of military experience in the entire Roman world, and that's Caesar. And he, has, he knows how to move. He knows how to organize. Nobody else is in his league. After the break, Caesar returns to Rome and establishes his role as leader of the Roman Republic. Caesar returns to Rome after his seven years at war in Gaul, and he faces a problem. He's got to cross the Rubicon River, 
which is the boundary of Rome at the time. Caesar builds a whole series of signal fires, and he has his legions leaning forward. He comes down without his legions because he wants to be peaceful. He wants to send a signal. He's, he's written the Gallic Wars, which are well worth reading, and which essentially are, he wrote, he wrote a volume every, every year, and they essentially are, here's how Caesar went and captured Gaul and turned all these slaves into money and why you should love Caesar because look what he's done for Rome. He also founds a daily newspaper to remind you that Caesar loves you. Caesar does good things for you. So his enemies who, under Roman rule, if he gives up his governorship, they can try him. And it's quite clear, given the last 40 years of Roman history, if they try him, they're going to kill him. And that's the only way they can contain him. And so he's negotiating, saying, oh, I want to be peaceful. I really want to work all this out. I'm down here without my, my army. You know, I'm your guy. Can't we get something worked out? Well, when they finally figure out, no, we're not, <laughs> we want to kill you. We're not going to work something out. What they hadn't reckoned on was he had already set his units in motion. And the first legion could get to the Rubicon in days. And they could send signal fires all the way through Gaul. So he's mobilizing a force very fast. Meanwhile, his major opponent, Pompey was the great general before Caesar. Between Sulla and Caesar, Pompey is the dominant figure. Very successful, very well organized, but a little slow and a little insecure. Where, where Caesar thinks, look, I'm descended from the gods. I might as well gamble because, you know, the gods will be there for me. Pompey kind of thinks, you know, I'm descended from normal people, and this guy Caesar scares me. Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, who we would call Pompey the Great, came out of a provincial Italian background. It's an interesting contrast. Very competent man, very hardworking man. He actually cleans up all the pirates in the eastern Mediterranean and is widely seen as a tremendous organizer of military forces. But in the end, he's not descended from the gods. He doesn't represent one of the oldest families in Rome. He doesn't have this aristocratic sense of destiny, which is at the heart of what makes Caesar so remarkable. And so Pompey, who's, he's proud, he's competent, he's powerful, but he's normal. And he's trying to cope with somebody who's abnormal. Pompey was smart, but Pompey was not, he didn't have that quickness, that sudden political skill that Caesar had, and he didn't have the ability to plan at three or four or five levels simultaneously. Uh, and the result was, I think, that Caesar always frightened him and always confused him. Every general I've ever studied, Caesar's on the short list of people you cannot give spare time to because he will use it, and he'll use it better than you will. So Pompey leaves Italy. Now, the reason this really matters, and this is why when you visit Rome and you look at the Colosseum and you look at the Forum and you just, just think to yourself, this was a city of over a million people at the time we're talking about. It was the center of the Mediterranean world. It had the symbolism. It's Rome. The guy who gives up Rome gives up symbolically all of the emotional and moral power. And as Caesar walks into Rome, he is acquiring all of the authority of being in Rome is also the center of money and the center of commerce. So Caesar overnight is able to start chasing Pompey's forces everywhere. And Caesar has better divisions. He has people who've been practicing warfare for seven years. They are loyal to him. 
Sadly for him, his top lieutenant actually leaves and joins Pompey. Uh, thinks Caesar will lose and thinks that Caesar's breaking the rules. And that makes Caesar feel bad. But he sends all of his all of his equipment to him because, you know, we had a great seven years. Sorry you sided with the other guy because he's going to lose. And so Caesar wanders around the Mediterranean, defeating the various forces on the other side, ending up with chasing Pompey all the way to Egypt, where the Egyptians, having figured out that Pompey is the loser, decide they will cut off his head and give it to Caesar because, you know, they want to show Caesar how much they like him. Well, they hadn't thought about the fact that Pompey was married to Caesar's daughter. Pompey and Caesar were friends. While they happened to have this little disagreement, which led to a civil war, uh, it's very likely Caesar would not have killed Pompey. And Caesar was genuinely deeply offended. They were in a civil war in Egypt between Cleopatra and her brother, and her brother's the one who cut off Pompey's head. And so uh, he, he sides with her, fights a civil war, defeats the Egyptian army, fights a civil war in Egypt. There's a moment where the Romans are, are being uh, besieged in Alexandria. And it's true during the siege, the, the great library of Alexandria is burned down, whether by Caesar's people or by the Egyptians. One, we don't know different size to that story. It was a great loss because it was a huge collection of Greek um, and, and Egyptian works that burned one night. Uh, but anyhow, they're there, and the regular Romans are getting very nervous. They're really worried, and why is Caesar not worried? And he said, I'm waiting. And they go, well, what, what, are, you, what are you waiting for? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for dawn. And they go, well, what happens at dawn? He said, well, the sun rises. I thought you knew. Well, what I didn't tell him was that two months earlier, he had ordered his legions to come from Syria, and he knew that they were a few miles outside of town. And that's very much like Caesar. You see, Caesar's ability to play seven games simultaneously and not tell you about any of them was amazing. And it, and it made him, I mean, people, I think people at one level were awestruck by him. And at another level, they were really frightened of him because the essence of the Roman model was to balance power so nobody had too much power and to have a system in which the very structure of the system limited the ability to lead to dictatorship. And what had been happening was through this long hundred-year period, dictators kept killing people and had established a pattern now that if you were on the losing side, it's not a huge jump from going to jail to being killed. And that's what was being to happen to them. And so you saw this continuous process. Even the people who were for Caesar were worried because Caesar ultimately represented the end of the republic. And he represented establishing a new system of power they had had, since the last Tarkian king was uh, kicked out in 476 BC, the Romans had had a passion against kingship. I mean, there was a long stretch there where if you, anybody thought you were thinking you were going to become a king, you were gone. And now all of a sudden, here's a guy who by sheer power and sheer brilliance is clearly the central figure. He becomes dictator for life, uh, not yet king, doesn't want to be king, just happy to be a dictator. Uh, and so... A group of people who begin to really worry that the system is, is right at tilt, and if they don't do something, that in fact the republic will die. And that's why you end up with the assassination in March of 44 BC. When we come back, 
Caesar faces a Senate who, jealous in his power, decides to murder him. An unfairly discharged Marine with a dark secret. A brilliant intelligence officer recovering from tragedy. This unlikely pair are brought together to stop a deadly Russian plot against the heart of the American system. Number one, New York Times bestselling authors Newt Gingrich and Pete Early return with a new series filled with action and intrigue that captures the tensions and divides of America and the world today. Collusion, a novel by Newt Gingrich. Available on Amazon.com and Audible now. One of the fascinating aspects of Caesar's life was the impact of his death because it became one of the most historic moments uh, in all of Western history, partially because of the brilliant portrait in Shakespeare's play and the uh, speech by Mark Antony at his funeral, partially because Caesar had been such a life force. He had been so dominant. Uh, he strode uh, across the Roman Empire in such a huge way that his disappearance through death left a vacuum that would take years to sort out because there was no natural ability for anyone to step in and become Caesar. And so there'd be an entire civil war before he was replaced by his nephew, who had actually found the empire itself, Octavius, who becomes Augustus, uh, and, and who's the second month we name for one of the Caesars. So you get July and August. Caesar himself, in a way, had almost set the stage for his own killing. The Greeks had a concept they called hubris, and hubris meant that you began to take on to yourself enormous power and enormous self-affection. And as you became more and more filled with hubris, uh, you began to set yourself up for what the Greeks called nemesis. And nemesis was the destruction of the person who had hubris. Well, in a way, Caesar is the perfect model of what the Greeks were trying to warn about. The bigger Caesar became, the more powerful Caesar became, the more people feared him and the more people envied him. And remember, the core of this isn't the average Roman. The average Roman thought Caesar was fine. Caesar fed them. Caesar entertained them. Uh, Caesar conquered slaves that enriched them. Now, so Caesar had a pretty big base among normal people. But if you're an aristocrat and you had a great sense of self-worth and you thought your family had been around for hundreds of years... And here suddenly you're in the shadow, no longer an equal, no longer a fellow aristocrat, no longer a person who could look upon themselves uh, as significant. But instead you were clearly weaker, lesser, subordinate, smaller, and you hated every minute of it. And you thought, who is this guy Caesar that he's flaunting his power, he's flaunting his role in history because there was a sense that the bigger Caesar got, the smaller the aristocrats got. So part of this is just pure old-fashioned jealousy. Well, Caesar had now accumulated a very substantial number of, of aristocrats who just loathed him. They couldn't say that to his face because they were terrified of him because he'd kill them. So they talked to each other in quiet. They met together. They began conspiring. 
There was a secondary part of this. There was a legitimate, honest, deep fear of kingship. Uh, it's important to remember that Rome really becomes Rome in 476 BC when they get rid of the last king, the last Tarkian king uh, is replaced and the Romans acquire this deep, passionate opposition to having a king. That's why the Republic is so stable for such a long period, because in their mind, the alternative is to go back to kingship. Well, now here's Caesar who says every day, oh, I don't really want to be a king. But in the last days before the, the Ides of March, uh, he and Mark Antony begin to play a game in which Mark Antony, who's his chief subordinate, starts to say, oh, well, wouldn't you consider being a king? And Caesar says, no, 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 nothing's further from my mind. I really, I can't imagine why you would mention the word king and Julius Caesar in the same sentence. Well, the other nobles know this is the beginning of a setup. And that at some point that summer, that uh, Caesar is very likely going to say, well, all right, if you really want me to be king, how can I turn you down? So you have both this fear that Caesar represents the end of the Republic uh, and the death of a system which was uh, almost 500 years old by that stage. And you had this personal level of just uh, really deeply disliking Caesar because he's too big, too powerful, too arrogant, too smart, and they just want to get rid of him. Conspiracy begins to grow. And ironically, the Roman Senate itself was uh, being refitted, and so they had to move the meeting place. They, they chose uh, Pompey's theater, remembering, of course, that Pompey was the great leader who Caesar had defeated in the earlier civil war. So now they're going down to Pompey's theater, which was a quite spectacular place, uh, and they're going to meet. The rumor comes, supposedly from a, a soothsayer who could see the future, that Caesar should beware the Ides of March. It was apparently real enough that his wife begged him not to go to that meeting of the Senate that day. Uh, and this apparently is not just a fiction of, of Shakespeare's making, but actually at the time uh, was a real event. Caesar, of course, I think had two different things going on. One was he was very skeptical of these kind of things. I mean, he, he, he didn't particularly worry about soothsayers uh, telling him he's going to win or lose anything. But the other was, I think that he had this sense of destiny. If it was his destiny to be killed, uh, then he would become a martyr for Rome. Uh, if it was his destiny to stay alive, then he would continue to be the leader who was uh, had become dictator, which was a step below kingship, uh, and he would continue simply to run Rome. And I think he sort of thought in that sense, there's, there's a fatalism in Caesar that uh, runs through his entire life. And you can see it over and over again where he risks death and he risks defeat because he just believes you have to roll the dice and see what's going to happen. And for virtually his entire life, he'd rolled the dice and he'd won. So he goes to Pompey's theater that day. And there were there may have been up to 60 nobles who had gotten together, although the number who actually attack him is a much smaller number. He knew that a number of them disliked him. But part of the reason they disliked him was he had contempt for them. So since he had contempt for them, he wasn't going to be afraid of them. And he deliberately dismisses his security force because he wants to communicate, I'm not afraid of you guys. I don't need to be surrounded by police to protect me uh, because none of you guys have the guts to do anything anyway. Well, that particular day he was wrong. When he goes in, the senators who hated him surround him. 
supposedly uh, Sevilius Casca hits the, strikes the first blow, uh, hitting him in the neck and drawing blood. Other senators join in, and he is hit again and again and again around the head and the neck. Marcus Brutus apparently wounds him in the groin, at least that's the traditional legend. And Caesar is said to have said to him, you too, my child, or et tu, Brute, as it became translated in later years. There was a rumor, which probably wasn't true, but it was a really delicious rumor, that Brutus, in fact, was his illegitimate son. He certainly had had a uh, long relationship with Brutus's mother, but given the relative ages, it's unlikely that Brutus is really his son. But it's clear that Brutus really dislikes Caesar, probably in part because he objected to Caesar sleeping with his mother. And that was a habit Caesar had with a substantial number of women around uh, the Roman aristocracy, which probably further led to people being willing to kill him. So Caesar dies, and it's as though a great force has left the world. And I think at one level, they're all staring at each other going, oh, my God, we really did it. And then they're faced with, so how do we deal with the Roman crowd? Because the Roman crowd initially was very pro-Caesar. Caesar had been very good to them, and he had uh, improved their lives. He paid attention to them. He was a popularis. He was interested in the people rather than the aristocracy. So they said, basically, we saved Rome from dictatorship. Mark Antony, speaking at the funeral, gives an oration. It's pretty clear that when the assassins were done speaking, they were in pretty good shape. By the time Mark Antony was done speaking, they're all sneaking out of town because the mob has turned and the mob clearly now will tear him apart. And this is apparently really an actual fact of that particular day, that in one oration, Mark Antony, who had been Caesar's deputy, is able to convince people, oh, I could never speak well of Caesar because we've all been told by these honorable men how evil Caesar is, and we know these are honorable men, and therefore I can't say anything good about Caesar, and so I'm not even sure I should read you Caesar's will, which Caesar, who you know loved you so much, has written. But it would be wrong of me to read this will in which Caesar loved you so much because we've all been told how evil Caesar is by these honorable men. And this goes on and on and crowd after, after, after a little while the crowd begins to go, well, read the will. We want to hear the will. Well, of course, the will is a perfectly political document in which Caesar has basically said, I love Rome so much that everything I have goes to you, the people of Rome. And then Antony has to say, well, now, we can't be grateful to Caesar for having loved us so much because we've all been told by these honorable men that he was a tyrant, that he was a bad person. So I'm sure none of you would want us to execute his will and give everybody all the things Caesar wants you to have because it would be so wrong to do that when these honorable men have told you that Caesar was bad. And of course, by this point, you have a combination of emotion and greed and memory. Uh, and frankly, the aristocrats are not very, they're very, not very nice people. And the average person in Rome knew that. And the average person in Rome knew that the number one reason the aristocrats didn't like Caesar was because they were aristocrats. And by the way, the aristocrats weren't going to be nice to the people either. And it apparently is true historically that by the end of Antony speaking, the aristocrats who killed Caesar had left Rome to get away before the crowd attacked them. Uh, it's truly a remarkable moment. And in that process, 
Caesar had set the stage by his death and by his will, uh, by Antony, who understood him, and by his young nephew, Octavius, who had been an apprentice to Caesar. Caesar had brought him in. Caesar had had him travel with him. Caesar had taken him on the wars, and Octavius learned an immense amount. Where Caesar shatters and ends the Republic, he doesn't actually create a stable system, and that's part of why he gets killed. But his nephew now, his nephew will come along, take over the family business, take over Caesar's name, and in the process establish an empire which will last for 400 years. And it's truly remarkable because nobody on the day Caesar was killed could have picked Octavius out as the long-term winner. He was totally underestimated by everyone, and yet he had learned so much from his uncle. And he knew how to play being the nephew. The only person who could claim to be Julius Caesar's heir was Octavius. And that may have been what ultimately, after death, was Caesar's last great contribution to uh, the history of Rome and the history of the Western world. If you'd like to know more about Julius Caesar, we've created a show page of some of my favorite books, plays, and movies about him at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please subscribe to Newt's World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get entertaining podcasts. On the next episode of Newt's World, 5G technology is going to fundamentally change the way we live our lives. Find out why it's referred to as the next industrial revolution. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. Everyone's listening. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.